Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry, and this is episode 28. Today, Danny and I present part two of our sit down with Scott Horton, host of Annie War Radio on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, also known by its podcast name, The Scott Horton Show. Scott has hosted Annie War Radio since 2003 and has done in excess of 4,800 interviews with war correspondents of all stripes. His book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, is an amazing collection on the history of war in Afghanistan, how presidential decisions from Carter to Trump have destroyed the greater Middle East, and how the American people were deceived by the leaders of their, their country about both the premise of the war and the history of it, which is just now past its 17th anniversary. Scott is also managing director of the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org and editorial director of anywar.com, where both Danny and myself, but mostly Danny, have published pieces on the American war state. Scott has an amazing mind and recalls even the tiniest of details about his research and reporting on Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, and so forth. Please do listen to his show on 90.7 if you're in the LA area. If not, Grab your podcatcher app and add the Scott Horton show to your podcasts. Rifle upon my shoulder and a rucksack on my back. Bullets, shells and shrapnel and a head. Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. For those new to the show, Danny and I are two progressive veterans who take the military and veteran stories of the day and add some much needed context. Someone attacked me actually for my speech being hosted on Breitbart and they go, oh, you can't listen to that. It's this right wing media on Breitbart saying an anti-war thing. And, and I think, you know, the message to liberals here, I, I don't mean to be too hard on liberals. The message to liberals here is they should be invoking right wingers who are anti-war. Absolutely. And whenever they see a right winger is anti-war, instead of saying, oh, no, maybe I should question my anti-war position because maybe war is great after all. If this right wingers against it, attacking the right winger, they should be invoking him and saying, look, man, Pat Buchanan and Ron Paul and. Was Stephen Walt and whoever other conservatives, even they say that we're right. You know what I mean? Like that ought to be the most powerful, um, not the most, well, I don't know, but a powerful talking point in the hands of Truth Dig and Truth Out and Code Pink and all of my favorite leftists, right? Is that like, this is not a leftist point of view. Anybody could tell you now that this has to end. You don't have to change your politics to liberal or left politics to change your mind about this war. Any of us could. And so liberals who I'm not asking you to change who you are, liberals and leftists, um, 
I'm just saying you ought to make use of right wingers and invoke right wingers and invoke libertarians and say, here are people who are bad on everything to us. And yet when it comes to occupying the Middle East, no way, you know, um, well, they it got comes it down to, uh, you know, like Ben Shapiro with his stupid fucking uh, liberal tears thing, you know, th- that liberals have to recognize that they're going to have to put parts of themselves down to fight, fight, to fight the good fights on one particular topic. And that means exactly what you just mentioned about going on Breitbart, about riding on um, the American conservative and, 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 and places like that. I wanted to mention that uh, I heard from an episode of War on the Rocks the other day. They were talking about George Bush's memoirs. And I, wanted, I think it was in 06 or 07 that his chain of command told him that the military was broken, that they were just they couldn't go any further, that they couldn't. You know, we're at we're at our capacity now. And Bush told him, you know, what would really break the military? another loss, another Vietnam, another thing. And so it's, it, it's this, you know, even for him growing up in the shadow of Vietnam, he didn't get away from it. He still wanted, you know, we're going to, we're going to go all the way. His father being called a, being called a wimp, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's this alpha males wanting to outdo other alpha males and never seeing the calculus, never seeing all these, these things lined up. Um, so I wanted to talk about Yemen a little, in a little more detail today. I have a, uh, a short clip from your interview with uh, Nasser Arabi that uh, I wanted to play for everybody. And I mean, I think anybody who's just watched the news through the terror wars and the casualty counts over time can tell that that couldn't be right after three and a half, almost four years of air war here. Uh, It's certainly, and ground war as well. It's certainly much higher than that. It has to be. And now, um, and so, but here's the thing that people might remember this from, uh, the days of Iraq war one and a half under Bill Clinton, when it was the uh, sanctions regime, the UN blockade against Iraq. And so there were the no fly zone bombings during that time, but those casualties were in the hundreds and they were horrible, but they were still, they were in the hundreds, but it was the casualties from the economic blockade that could only be measured in what they call excess deaths, where they compare the death rate over time to how it was previously. And of course, how it was previously in Iraq was already really bad in the Iran-Iraq war and all of that. Um, and they came up with somewhere between three and 500,000 uh, dead children from the sanctions regime at that time. And uh, so that's the kind of study that has never taken place in Yemen during this war that we won't know. That if whatever the, exactly the numbers of, of killed in the violent attacks, that when it comes down to it, we already can see. Um, from the hunger and the starvation and the deliberate destruction of civilian infrastructure, food infrastructure, um, water, sewage, electricity, um, and hospitals, and all of these things by the U.S. Saudi regime here, that um, the excess death rate, we're going to find that hundreds of thousands. I uh, really enjoyed the episode. I Discussing the how the official death numbers are still at 10,000 and how long they've been at 10,000 and that, that the media and other places continues to just repeat this, this 10,000 bullshit. And you, in, in, in discussing the sanctions with Clinton, I, um, with the Clinton era, I saw a New York, New Yorker article recently that talked about is famine a new kind of warfare. And I, I almost wanted to throw my phone across the room because of course famines if famine's been a part of warfare since warfare began but the, the the question is about you know the starvation in Yemen 
And that is a tactic that we've chosen a lot more times than most people know. I didn't know that we had all those sanctions had starved that many hundreds of thousands of people back in Iraq before we went in the second time. And Danny and I talked pretty often about that following Gulf War One, there was what, 200,000, 200,000 people that Saddam butchered, the ones that George Bush said, come join our side. And Saddam took care of them. Um, but about the, back to about the starvation thing, could you talk a little more about the tactic, how Clinton used it and how that fits into what's going on in Yemen today? Sure. Well, and this is a major reason that we were attacked on September 11th, because the um, protection of those Shia that you just talked about, that Bush encouraged to rise up and, and then left high and dry like the Bay of Pigs and let Saddam slaughter them all. Uh, a couple hundred thousand, at least a hundred thousand, maybe more than that. Um, that that then became the excuse to stay in Saudi Arabia, even though Dick Cheney had promised the king will leave as soon as the war against Iraq is over and we got him out of Kuwait. They decided to stay to enforce these no-fly zones, and then also, I mean, just with UN power, they didn't really need the military to enforce the blockade. Um, but yeah, you know, I guess it helped with the navies everywhere there and the yeah. and the air force too. So. Um, and then there was this, the pretext, of course, all along that it was that he was still hiding weapons of mass destruction, even though he knew, even though he had destroyed everything by the end of 1991, he had tried to hide some chemical weapons, uh, but he got caught. And so he destroyed the very last of it, the end of 1991, the same year as the war, just, you know, 11 months later, that was the end of the last of his chemical weapons as though holding chemical weapons is a pretext for war anyway. Yeah. Uh, give me a break. But yeah, that part goes without saying all the time. Um, but they knew by 1995 that that was no longer true and that, you know, they had really destroyed everything. The UN was satisfied and all that, but then they refused to lift the sanctions anyway. And the Bush administration in the first place had said that, you know, the reason that they had bombed I mean, when you talked about bomb, or that quote of me talking about bombing the sewage and the waterworks and everything, I could have been talking about Iraq in the 90s. That part was about Yemen today, right? Yeah, yeah. But same thing they did in Iraq War One was they bombed all the electricity, all the sewage, all the waterworks and, um, you know, all the irrigation systems and everything. And then under the blockade, the Iraqis were basically unable to put any of it back together again. And the Bush administration, the Bush senior administration had said, yeah, exactly, because we're trying to make the Iraqi people all so miserable that they'll rise up and overthrow Saddam. So never even mind the pretext of weapons of mass destruction or crushing the Shia again more or anything like that. That The policy is regime change, but we're not going, but we want the Iraqis to do it. And the fact that we just asked them to do it and hundreds of thousands of them rose up to do it. And then we stabbed them in the back and left them high and dry. And by the way, it is important. The reason why they changed their mind was because Iranian militias and Iraqi militias who had been living in Iran ever since Jimmy Carter had hired Saddam to invade Iran back in 1980, the Iraqis that had chosen Iran's side, they started coming across the border to lead the revolt. And at that point, the Bush senior administration realized, oh, no, we're we're reversing the Reaganite policy of backing Saddam's war against Iran to contain the Iranian revolution. Now we're importing it into Iraq. So they choked. And then that is where Bush Jr. picked up in 2003 and continued on with that war and put in power who? The Bada Brigade, the very same guys, the Iraqi 
the Iranian-backed Iraqi militias who were the Iraqi quote-unquote traitors who had taken Iran's side in the Iran-Iraq war. Um, but anyway, so um, then they had this blockade and see before the Iraq war, before Iraq war one started in the desert shield and all of that, they had all these security council resolutions um, basically banning all international trade with Iraq. And the only way they could be lifted would be, and they were permanent. The only way they could be lifted would be if there was a new resolution that was passed and they no one, none of the other powers on the security council even bothered because they knew that the Americans could veto anything anyway, it would have to be an American initiated process to lift the sanctions. And the Americans made it clear that they just were absolutely weren't going to do that. So the sanctions stayed through the war, after the war, through the Bush senior administration, and then through the entire Bill Clinton administration. And they also announced the very same policy that, you know, they, in so many words, weapons is a pretext. The policy is regime change. And we are keeping the sanctions on until Saddam Hussein, by hook or crook, one way or the other, is removed from power. And so then that led to, you know, massive suffering and poverty on the part of the Iraqi people, and particularly the Shia in the South and the Kurds up in the North who had revolted. And they were starving. And there were all these different studies that showed that they were starving. And I'll tell you, in my book, um, well, I guess it was a, I don't know, maybe it was something that I talked about on the radio. I think maybe it was something I had said on the Tom Woods show that a guy on Twitter said, well, you know, those numbers are disputed. 500,000 Iraqi children had died. That that came originally from a UN study that actually was forged and they retracted it. It was one of the participants in the study obviously forged and fudged his numbers and, and they extrapolated, therefore, all wrong. And the number 500,000 was probably overinflated. And it turned out there had been a debate about this that I really didn't know about. And so I studied up on it. And then I interviewed as many people as I could about it who were involved at the time, including Dennis Halliday, one of the UN officials who resigned over it. And then my best source that I found, and I interviewed the guy about it, is a guy named Dr. Richard Garfield. And he had done a study. Um, uh, in, I guess, 1999, where he went back through all the other studies and this, that, and what have you. And, and you can find it uh, online. It's pretty easy to find. And his estimate it was that it was 300 and something thousand kids. So there's your margin of error there. And it seems like, you know what? That sounds like probably a more accurate estimate than 500,000 anyway. But the reason the 500,000 is really important, and I mean, hell, Think about that. 300,000 kids that otherwise would not have died, died. I mean, how many more before you're pissed off? <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean yeah. at that point? Right. Um, but um, so um, uh, I forgot what point I was going to say. So I'll say this one. Osama bin Laden, I didn't quote this in the book because it almost sounds like I'm taking his side too much. But I thought this quote was important because it helped him recruit. This was the argument that the terrorists made about the United States and Osama bin Laden. I have no idea if this is even in the Quran or what. Like, I just I just know this quote from him where he said that there's a story in the Quran where there is an old woman who wouldn't feed her cat, but nor would she allow it to go outside to try to fend for itself either. And she just basically starved it to death. And so then Allah sent her to hell because how dare she be so cruel to do that? And that was it. She had to suffer for eternity for that. And then so bin Laden says, so what do you think that God's going to do to Bill Clinton? 
after what he's doing to the women and children of Iraq. And I think it's worthwhile to mention how little Americans cared at all about what was happening to the Iraqi people. I mean, media didn't cover it, but Americans couldn't be bothered anyway. Bunch of camel jockeys or Arabs or this, that, or whatever. It was meaningless to the American people, uh, just as much as it was meaningless to Bill Clinton. And there were, there were some great activists who opposed it. Don't get me wrong. There were people who were really good on it, but very, very few. And it was just this, the policy was just kind of permanent. And, um, and um, oh, and then I was going to say the 500,000 is famous because uh, Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes asked Madeleine Albright, Bill Clinton's secretary of state, um, that, you know, they say the UN is saying that 500,000 children have died. And that's more people than died at Hiroshima. So, I mean, what are we doing? Is the price worth it for that? And Madeleine Albright said, yes, it's a very hard choice, but we think the price is worth it. And so that actually did not get that much coverage, I don't think, at the time in 1996 in the United States, but it got a lot of coverage in the Middle East. It got played over and over again. And is this infamous quote. And interestingly, she's been confronted about it numerous times. She's only ever been confronted about saying something so crass. She's never been asked whether she's sorry for the sanctions that killed the children that motivated these enemies to attack the United States of America. Nobody ever asked her about that. And she, I'm so sorry. I said that, which is as good as like, I'm sorry that your feelings were hurt or something when she knocked the damn towers down with that quip. Right. And another million people were killed in the wars since then because of her. Nobody ever asked her. She was sorry for that. And if, it, it really speaks to just like the neoliberal worldview of the whole Clinton administration. Yep. And we're so quick, us on the left are so quick to give a pass to Obama or to give a pass to Bill Clinton, you know, because maybe we like him on domestic policy, even though I actually don't. But uh, yeah, this does not get reported, but when, you know, the, the way you phrase it, that she knocked down the buildings is controversial. I know it's meant to be, and I like it. I like that. It's, you know, sort of provocative because that's the kind of honest language we need, which kind of brings me to my last question today that I want to kind of focus on, which is, you know, you mentioned how the people did not give two shits about the Clinton era sanctions here in the United States, but how the people in the Middle East knew quite well that half a million Iraqi children had allegedly been killed. 300,000, 400,000, whatever it was. Um, Tomorrow is election day. Tomorrow is the midterm elections that both Obama and Trump have told us Okay, two polar opposite human beings have both told us these are the most consequential midterm elections in our in our lifetime. They've both said that, okay, over the weekend. And what strikes me as a foreign policy analyst is that the wars, the seven ongoing wars or however many you count, aren't even on the ballot tomorrow. I haven't seen a single mention of foreign policy in, and all I get during my commercial breaks anymore is political ads in Missouri and Kansas. And I haven't heard not one. I mean Dude, not one reference to foreign policy or war. Right. Hey, why, why is that? And what does that, what, what does that say about our society? Well, a lot. I mean, even when it was Trump versus Hillary, neither of them were asked about Afghanistan a single time and neither of them volunteered a single word about it in the entire race of 2015, 2016, not once. So people even sometimes say he promised to get us out of Afghanistan. Well, he criticized Obama for not getting us out of Afghanistan back before he started running. But to tell you the truth, and I know this, or if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. The subject just never came up. Subject never came up. 
Nobody, nobody cared enough to even ask about, well, what are you going to do about Afghanistan to either of them in any context uh, in that entire election? And, you know, so personally, my thing is, is I don't vote. I'm just so over this and I refuse to consent and participate in the system at all. I don't begrudge others who vote in self-defense. I don't, I never begrudge a left winger or a right winger for choosing one side over the other. Uh, cause they're both so horrible. The worst things you have to say about the other side are correct pretty much. So, um, and I extend that even to voting. If you think one side is so much more dangerous than the other, you just can't help, uh, voting one way or the other in self-defense. Fine. Don't tell me any of these people deserve our support. I mean, this guy, Beto, who's like the new Obama and has his heartthrob Senate candidate here in Texas, um, who I'd be really surprised if a Democrat could win a Senate seat in Texas, no matter what. But he's horrible. You know, as you read about him on, on Mondo Weiss, all about uh, his Zionism is just disgusting. And from a guy who, you know, knows better because of his previous positions and now is willing to just, you know, move Jerusalem to Austin, do whatever you want. Um, this guy's scumbag. Um, so, and he's, you know, supposed to be some great savior from Ted Cruz. Um, please. So, I mean, that's really my take. I guess I really want to see the Democrats crushed over because of Russia. They spent two years lying their ass off, pretending that the Russians even did a damn thing to intervene and change the results of that election, try to nullify a democratic election in America that they lost based on outright lies about the most dangerous foreign power on the planet that they could get us into a war in. And you notice they don't talk about that at all in these midterms. You mentioned they don't talk about the wars. They don't talk about, oh, Donald Trump is the is the secret agent of Russia, Russia, Russia. Everybody knows that. You would think that if he was really a treasonous agent of a foreign power, that they would make their campaign about that. Apparently, they knew they were lying for the last two years. And that was just a bunch of crap for a bunch of stupid liberals to believe in and, and the Democrats apparently don't believe in it at all. Actually, by the way, sorry, heard Papadopoulos had a bar with a guy, had a drink at a bar with a guy somewhere or something. Uh-huh. And, and they don't even make mention of it cause it's nothing. So I would like to see every Democrat lose every Democrat lose over Russia. But then I would also like to see every single Republican lose over what they've done uh, with uh, Jerusalem. And for that matter, escalating the wars in Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, and Syria. Um, they did, Trump did call off support for Al-Qaeda in Syria, and he does deserve credit for that. Obama should be buried under the supermax in Florence, Colorado, for his high treason in backing the Al-Nusra front in Syria for five years. At least Trump called that off. But these guys are all so much worse than each other. Um, you know, I, my position is they have all forsaken anything like a legitimate claim on being our security force in any way. So how do you pick, how do you vote for one over the other in a case like that? I don't. Earlier when you mentioned about battle, I can barely hear you. Uh, how about now? Any better? Um, uh, Yeah, it's a little better. Go ahead. A little better. Um, turn my mic up a little bit. So, uh, we mentioned about Madeline Albright being essentially directly connected to September 11th, that, that the Clinton administration policies pushed that to, to a breaking point. And I mentioned something to Danny before you, you joined us today, and it was about seeing al-Qaeda sects specifically in Yemen right now, given that they fall under one command in terms of Saudi Arabia, that these guys are just their special forces, that we, you know, it, 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 it 
puts us in a really bad spot to understand any kind of foreign policy when the terrorists are all horrible, you know, all the, all the, all the, all the adjectives that we would add in about, you know, being murderers and genocidal and all, you know, the, the ways that we, we shut down discussion, but it doesn't look at this natural inclination of people to fight back. And so how is it fair? How do we see any difference between Delta force CIA teams, whoever the fuck it happens to be and Al Qaeda, you know, the, 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 the stuff that I've covered, the stuff in, you know, the attack in Somalia, the, uh, the one in Yemen that killed, um, Sarkawi's kid, um, we are no fucking better. We just, it, it's just about blood. It just seems to me that those men live for blood and. Well, and part of it, look, it's the myth that, Hey, they started it. So that too, yeah, yeah. What we do include some collateral damage. Well, we don't want to put our guys at undue risk. And so that's tough for them. If they got their own people into this mess. Yeah. Yeah. And after all, you got to do what you got to do. And then, so that's why, you know, part one of my book and part one of my next book too, are all about getting into this mess. Why this is all Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Bill Clinton's fault. They're the ones who did this. They started it. They killed hundreds of thousands of innocent people. And that is what got America attacked on September 11th. Doesn't make the rebellion against the empire into princess Leia and Han Solo. Al Qaeda guys are bad guys. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah no. That USA isn't the evil empire. It absolutely is. And it absolutely started this fight. So, you know, that's kind of, I mean, I've just decided this. I could be wrong and I'm willing to hear correction, but it seems to me like these are the most important points is that this is all Jimmy Carter through Bill Clinton's fault in the first place. And that then look what happens when we give them a writ to defend us. They don't go after Al Qaeda. They let Osama escape. Then they turn right around to get rid of the socialist, secular, fascist Saddam Hussein with the clean shaven chin, turn half his country into Bin Ladenistan, the other half into Iranistan. Then what do they do? They turn around and they start backing Al Qaeda again, like 9-11 never happened. Like it's still Bill Clinton backing Al Qaeda in Bosnia. And what's the worst that could happen? Khalid Sheikh Mohammed earn his stripes or something like that fighting for us. It'll be fine. Don't worry. And so. Um, the Mujahideen that came home from the Afghan war in the nineties became Al Qaeda fought in Bosnia and in Kosovo and in Chechnya. And then those guys, including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed did nine 11. You had Zarqawi who had come to Afghanistan to fight at the very end of the Russian war. Um, who then ended up later becoming the founder of Al Qaeda in Iraq after America got rid of, uh, the dictator there and created that massive vacuum of power and all of that. And so. And then that's so bad that they turn right around. They do such, they, and then they, because at the same time, I guess they're empowering the Shia so, so badly that they figured there's no other way than to back Al Qaeda, bin Ladenite forces like Jandala, Al Nusra, and, and the rest in order to, and the AQAP for that matter, in order to check Iranian power. So um, I'm sorry, I forgot what the question was, and I'm rambling, but like, yeah, for them to, um, but I mean, this is this kind of intervention. Oh, I know what it was. It was my idea is that these are the only two arguments that matter about foreign policy, basically. Right. Because because what negates what you said, what you said is perfect. But what negates it is, yeah, but they started it. Right. But what negates that yeah. is, no, they did not either. The USA started it. Now we'll deal with the rest of the argument from there. History does not begin on September 11th. So that's then the first part. And then the second part being and then 
Once we say, go get Osama for us, what do they do? They hire Osama's men because they hate Iran more than they hate the guys that hit their own damn Pentagon. And Danny and I, <clears throat> Danny and I talk pretty often about the lack of, of actual love for the military. You know, we have a, we have a, this veneer of love, but when you really get down to it, when you understand where, where troops come from, where veterans come from, that America hates soldiers, they hate troops. You know, you can't, you know, if we looked at the words, it's all glorious and wonderful, but the actions, and again, these are, these are betrayals of the fundamentals of our country, not just being members of the military, but the fundamentals of being American and taking death all over the world. I, I, I hate that that's part of being an American now. And like you said, that everybody knows it. That people in the Middle East aren't confused. The people in Yemen are not confused. They know that it's us that's bringing death to their door. That if we weren't helping the Saudis, they couldn't fucking do it. Yep, absolutely true. And, you know, what really gets me, too, is just how absolutely unnecessary all this is. And, you know, I love the fact that Donald Trump a few weeks ago said that George Bush's, as the way he put it, invasion of the Middle East not just Iraq, but really getting across the point that George Bush knocked the whole damn region over, you know, that Bush's invasion of the Middle East, Trump said, the Republican, the sitting Republican president of the United States, not Ron Paul, who could have been, but the actual president, Republican president of the United States said Bush's decision to invade the Middle East was the worst decision an American president ever made, that he ruined everything over there. And which just goes to show, never even mind the 80s and the 90s, but just even in the 21st century, in reaction to the September 11th attack, it did not have to be this way at all. No. They could have sent Donald Rumsfeld back over there to shake hands with Saddam Hussein, to tell Saddam Hussein, we'll bring you back in from the cold. You can be the dictator. Just lighten up on the mass murder all the time and promise that you'll keep Al-Qaeda down and you're fine. They could have done that. They could have immediately, George Bush could have got on a plane to Iran and, and met with the Ayatollah and said, you know what? The old days are the old days, but you hate Osama. I hated Osama. Let's be friends. And it didn't have to be like this at all. No. We didn't have to have any of this. This whole time we could have been, the war on terrorism could have been over by Christmas 2001. We could have had a 21st century that was not like this at all. At all. And, you know, to hear a Republican president saying that, pronouncing that in that way, when it also happens to be absolutely true, I think is a huge milestone and, you know, absolutely should be taken advantage of by us. You know, I gave an anti-war speech to a group of Liberty Republicans one time. And I just assumed that they were all Ron Paul worshippers like me for some reason. And uh, man, this one guy got so pissed off. He wanted to fight me because I was saying all this anti-war stuff and how Trump, what Trump's doing is wrong and is helping the enemy, just like the guys before him. And I realized that, man, I really blew it. I should have been taking my own advice and attacking the right from the right. And the very first thing I should have said in that speech, knowing that there were probably some hawks in the room, the very first thing I should have done was invoke Donald Trump. Donald Trump says we should not have done Iraq. We shouldn't have done it at all. At all. In, in other words, the entire 21st century terror war did not have to be waged. No. It, you know, everything could have been over way back then. And that's what Donald Trump says. So if you don't like that, take it up with him because he's a tough guy, macho right wing hawk, isn't he? And if he says that George Bush shouldn't have done that, you know, it's not because he's afraid of Iraqis. 
It's because it's a big, stupid waste of money. You can't see the benefit in it. Who can, you know? And so, you know, again, like I say, invoke the right there. They've got, there are enough, right, uh, enough anti-war right wingers to cover our right flank as libertarians or as liberals and leftists, progressives, um, you know, to go to show that, yeah, no, we really were right all this time. You should have listened to us in the first place, but it ain't too late to quit right now. Well, you see that in the defense appropriations bill. I think uh, Bernie Sanders voted against it, but I think the other six no votes were all Republicans, which yep. is really instructive because like you've said, the traditional view of the anti-war movement is, is stuck in the Vietnam era of like liberal hippies. But the reality on the ground today is that while there is still a small anti-war left, actually some of the most strident voices in favor of common sense do come from the libertarian Rand Paul, right? Mm-hmm. And look at when Ron Paul ran for president, no one had ever heard of him before. You know, he was just a member of the House of Representatives. So, he, you know, there was one hardcore Ron Paul fan in every neighborhood in America, but just one, right? It wasn't like he was Donald Trump famous or anything. Um, but when he ran for president, and especially after he fought with Rudy Giuliani over what? Who started it? America started it, Ron said, and we should just end the war. We just marched in. We could just march home. That's it right now. I don't want to negotiate a perfect ending. I just want to quit right now. And Ron Paul got more donations and presumably more votes from members of the military, or I don't know, you know, in the primaries anyway, more vote, uh, presumably, but certainly more money from active duty and veterans than all of the other candidates combined, including Obama and Hillary and Kucinich and Gravel on the other side. Ron Paul got more donations than all the Republicans and all the Democrats at the same time because he was right wing and anti-war, basically, because he was anti-war, but he wasn't from Hollywood. He wasn't, you know, big fat communist hypocrite like Michael Moore, right? Who lives in a giant mansion but says your tax rate should be 100%, you know, and all this crap that right wingers just despise. And Ron was like, hey, I'm white. I'm old. I'm a Christian. I'm married to my wife. I, I am a doctor, not a lawyer. That was nice. And, and I, and I'm a air force veteran, unlike the rest of these clowns, uh, all these hawks in the race who've never been in a fight in their life, you know, although he was a doctor, not a fighter, but still, um, air force veteran. And so he said, in essence, you know, if you like your identity, you can keep it calling all anti-war right-wingers. I know you've been feeling a lot of peer pressure, basically to conform to this hawkish opinion, but I'm here to tell you, you could be more anti-war than that idiot Michael Moore. No problem. And you don't have to change what you think about anything else about yourself. <laughs> you know, you don't have to stop believing in Jesus. You don't have to start, you know, promoting Medicare expansion or whatever things you don't agree with. Just change your mind on this. And, and millions of people, including, I don't know, untold, counted, uncounted tens of thousands, I guess, of American active duty and veterans agreed with that and want desperately to hear that message. Scott, I learned so much from your show, from your podcast. I, I, it's, uh, it's incredible, but yeah, I'm, uh, I, uh, I, I covered all my questions, but, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming to talk to us. And, uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll have you on again about other stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, this uh, we're, we're I think we're at a focal point where there are a lot of veterans, a lot of left or right leaning veterans that don't know how to start the conversation. How do I start talking to my battle buddies about this was wrong? Because it, there's, there's a, the, the whole other side of that cognitive dissonance is how they deal with their own history. 
And so how do we, you know, and, and I think that's been a big thing for me, you know, is that I, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with the idea that I participated on the, all this than I used to be, but that doesn't change it. That doesn't change the reality, but that's the thing is how do we, you know, how do Danny and I approach it in that, in that way? You know, like you said, the right from the right absolutely is the best way to get there. But, um, well, and look, there's a lot of guys who are not going to be able to talk about stuff like this because for them it's too personal and, and, you know, geopolitical strategy is not their interest and they don't want to hear you say their best buddy died for nothing over there. No. And I can understand that. I don't go following dudes around arguing about stuff. You no, know? no, no. I hear for people who come for it, but I know that this could be really touchy. You know, your best friend dies over there, your son dies over there, and now someone wants to say the whole war was wrong. Like to me, um, you know, I th- I try to keep the issues very separate because I think, I mean, they're not obviously they're not entirely separate, um, but you know, mostly. You know, the military knows to only send to to train guys in very small groups and to keep very best friends together for the long term so that they could plop you in the middle of Baghdad, plop you in the middle of Kyrgyzstan or God knows where. It doesn't matter. Colombia, whatever. You're there fighting for each other and you're there to take risks for each other and protect each other. And so you have all this meaningful bond of brotherhood and all this kind of crap. And so, like, I mean, for me, I don't know. I, I don't have much comment about that other than. You know, I, I understand and respect people being brave and risking their own life to protect other people and all that. But, you know, that that can't prevent us from from carrying forward the message that we never should have been there in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Should have never been there. The whole thing is corrupt because that's really I mean, I feel like the almost a lot of times. You know, the Hawks kind of hide behind soldiers that like, I know you don't oh, yeah. want to hurt these soldiers feelings and stuff. And it's sort of like. Yeah, but I didn't really, I wasn't really talking about them that much. I was talking about what was going on over at PNAC and CNAS and all these, you know, eggheaded think tankers and representatives of corrupt interests and corrupt ideologies who don't have any skin in the game at all. For them, this is all a board game and all a bunch of fun, a sociology class experiment, um, you know, where they get to play around with these, you know, meaningless masses of human beings. Um, without a care for what happens to them. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, I think probably that's also for people who are willing to hear you at all, that's probably also definitely like the way to approach it. That like, I'm really not criticizing your heroism at the, you know, in the battles there uh, in Hellman province or whatever kind of thing. I'm just talking about why Petraeus had you in the Hellman province. What was supposed to be accomplished there? What was yeah. kind of ask, ask the larger questions that hopefully make those smaller questions kind of, if not moot, at least sort of that they can be put aside, you know, cause that's not really the question no. of, um, you know, whether you were brave or not. The question is where you were being brave and what the, you know, this larger mission, larger strategy, larger, you know, set of interests at play and all those kinds of things. Danny and I have talked about, you know, all soldiers fight for each other. It's a, it's a universal part right. of being in warfare that can't ever be the reason that we went to a place that we killed a bunch of people. It, it, it's our, our brotherhood is for us, but it, it's not about the mission. It's about something right. totally different. Don't use yeah, that. I mean, that's really a good way to put it. Right. Is it's, it's, you know, that's all fine for what it is. It is what it is, but that can't be the reason. Yeah. 
Yeah. That can't be, you know, where it's this self-justifying, yeah. self-licking ice cream cone kind of thing where, yep. you know, the meaning you get out of it becomes the excuse for the mission. You know what? Honestly, um, as cynical and crazy as this sounds, I mean, you can read about it in the Weekly Standard. Uh, Fred Barnes, National Greatness Conservatism. And this is why we have to have war all the time. So it's a big project that we can all work together on. Something important, something meaningful that makes us, us together, you know, and, yeah. and build our nationalism on the blood of the Iraqi people. And, and that really is the way they think that that, that that is the mission, that your bonds of brotherhood with your teammates over there is a good enough reason to start the war itself, you know, and the, the, the virtues that flow from that, which is, is absolutely perverse, you know? It is. It really is. And you know what, too, like I've known enough army guys in my life that I mean, my whole life long that I've heard this said a million times over. It's just a job. <laughs> They're not all worried all about patriotism and symbols and ideologies and strategies. It's like where I, where I come from in my neighborhood, we're basically a bunch of army guys. Our dads were, that's kind of our thing. It's our job. We do our job. And I don't want to hear a bunch of gru- a bunch of guff about it. And I don't want to hear a bunch of praise about it either. It's just a job. Yeah. You know, is what I is what I hear from a lot of guys. And so, I mean, you know, I don't know. I've always heard that my whole life long. I've heard guys say that. So I guess I kind of think of it like, well, good, then you can get another job. It's, <laughs> you know, and oh, and I was going to say at the other on, on the other hand, that the job that they sign up for, they think is at least within the goalpost somewhere of fighting for freedom. Yeah. Defending yeah. the country, not going around you know, carrying out sociology projects for the Likud, but, you know, only, only being, only having their life put at risk when it's truly necessary to protect the country. That's the deal that they're signing up for. That's the mythology of the entire democracy, right? Is that the people are sovereign. The people are free. The grown up adult civilians of the country, they have these great debates and they decide what's right. And they elect these representatives and presidents and officials. And because of the democracy, it's guaranteed and rest assured that they make the right decisions about what's the best interests of the American people. That's what makes democracy so much better than some family fiefdom. Right. And so we learn that over and over and over our whole childhood long, our whole youth growing up when you're, a 17, 18 year old joining the military, you're not questioning grand strategy and all that. That's really, I mean, when you're an 18 year old, that's really still for grownups, people who are like, I don't know, out of their twenties and thirties yeah. <laughs> to figure out. And, and so your job is to do or die. And you're relying on everybody else's mom and dad to decide whether this is the right mission or not. And then what do the Americans do? They drop the ball because a bunch of cowards hide behind those very same soldiers that they're sending off to war and say, you can't criticize their policy or else you're attacking the soldier and stabbing them in the back, which is pretty cynical and horrible. And, and, you know, it's kind of, and, and, and frankly ridiculous that they're able to continue to get away with that. You know, I put, uh, I put John Bolton right in that seat. You know, one of those people that he's a super hawk, but nah, he wasn't going to go fight in a losing war. Yeah. So you see right there where his values are, it did, He'll send anybody to war. You can die for his, for his experiment. You know what his, what, however he fucking sees it. So. Yep. Same with Dick Cheney. He said, you know, why didn't I fight in Vietnam? Well, I had other priorities at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so did a lot of people have other priorities. And in fact, I even saw where someone traced where when they started 
loosening the rules on the draft so that more and more people were being included that, you know, he, um, you know, I forgot if, if college had something to do with it, but he got married when they changed the rule where now, it, now you better be married to stay out of it. Hmm. And then they changed the rules again, where now even being married, isn't going to help you very much. And then nine months later, his first daughter was born, you know, after they changed the rules like that. And then, you know, whatever it was. So, and people had made that connection. We're like, wow, this guy actually, his family life at that time, marrying Lynn and having his children and everything, it was perfectly correlated with doing all of that to stay out of Vietnam. And this guy then became the single leading hawk of the 21st century. You know, the, the, the irony is, is almost unbelievable, but it's so typical. Yep. The Wolfowitzes of the world, the, you know, they, they really believe that the military should act as like chess pieces in their own like highly ideological game. And, and to me, that does make them uh, criminal, all right, criminally neglectful because they're, they're, they're experimenting. They don't know for sure that their ideology is correct. It's been proven wrong, of course, but no one knows for sure. But they were willing in order to like play out their fantasies. They were willing to move toy soldiers around like we weren't real people. And, that, and that's my gripe ultimately with the neocons and the neoliberals. Right. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, I mentioned I just had this debate with, um, well, not really a debate, a little bit of a debate with uh, Stephen Walt. I was interviewing him uh, right before we went on here. And he's got this new book, The Hell of Good Intentions, which, you know, I asked, are you sure you're not just begging the question there? But, you know, he's saying that, yeah, no, he really believes that the vast majority of the motivation behind all this is that these guys believe all their own hype about if we use American power to force all the last non-democratic states in the world to become democratic, then they'll all vote to, be, you know, submit to American authority um, uh, to do things our way. We'll never have wars again you know, the Democrat peace theory and all this stuff. And that, you know, they really believe in benevolent global hegemony as Robert Kagan calls it emphasis on the benevolent. And that, can you imagine if it was any other way, what a horror show it would be. And I mean, I think what you just said is really my objection to that, that like, you know, I know there's a lot of do gooder talk and there must be a lot of do gooder belief surrounding American policy and and how it, how they come up with this stuff. But then, like you're saying, look at the consequences of what we're talking about. We're talking about a severe immorality where, the, where more than a million people are dead in these wars, just in the 21st century here. Um, and, well, you know, it was a war of choice. It didn't quite work out. It was whatever. Like, this is absolutely criminal to, to, to chalk up something like that to an honest mistake, um, that kind of thing, to to a difference of opinion based on an ideology or, or based on a strategy for what will be good for America and the world and to kind of, you know, dismiss the cruelty and dismiss the, the narrow interests at play, such as, you know, Lockheed's influence, for example, or, um, or just the generals and, and the admirals themselves who are all bucking for promotions and all the rest of this stuff. I mean, I don't know, man. Like if you're hanging around at the Pentagon, is it that nobody ever calls them damn Arabs? They never say, oh, well, screw them anyway, or anything mean like that. They really always mean that well for the people over there. Like I kind of doubt that. I kind of doubt that that's how it is at the Pentagon or even at, over at Michelle Flournoy's house when she's eating dinner with the Kagans. That like ultimately, you know, 
the, the American soldiers and the Arabs too are all basically unpeople. They're just like you said, you know, they're playthings for their little Toys. fantasies about the way yeah. things should go. And they really don't care at all. And I don't, I, it's hard for me to chalk that up to a difference of opinion when your difference of opinion is like, yeah, sometimes torture people and yeah, sometimes murder them, <laughs> you know? I don't know. Um, but I guess I'm not in that business, right? Like, I guess if I was a realist, then I would be arguing against liberal interventionism in more of an academic way. It just seems to me like that's more of like the least of it rather than the root of it. You know what I mean? The ideology of help here. Yeah, war is war is a force that gives us meaning. Yep. Yeah, that's it's, true. It's 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 um, it certainly is. And, you know, like, you know, you look at Paul Wolfowitz, he certainly thought he knew what was going to happen and it was going to be great. No question about that. You know, I think. You know, maybe Douglas Fife was more cynical, maybe um, Richard Pearl actually, you know, were friends with Wolfowitz, but didn't really care if maybe things went really bad. <laughs> You know, as um, as Michael Ledeen, their fellow traveler and close friend from AEI and National Review, put it back then repeatedly, we need to turn the entire Middle East into a boiling cauldron. Faster, please, he said. Faster, please. Regime change here, 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 here and here now. Let's set it all on fire. Let's knock it all over. Let's shake the hell out of everything and let's see how it works out. It'll be better than it is now. And of course, focusing on Tehran first. And so that's pretty damn mean. I don't think that's just democratic peace theory gotten a little haywire there. You know, that's something far more brutal and cynical. And, uh, and Clinton and Obama's desire to just be, just be, uh, to just be dinos, you know, they're perfectly fine with, okay, we're just going to be a little less conservative than the Republicans. And and that's all we got. Eight years of Obama, not just the foreign policy, but the domestic policy where, yep. you know, very few new jobs were created. Nothing about the economy is good except for the rich. Um, but yeah, that they're, they're, they're constantly, they think that they're going to not seem tough and they need to do exactly what you're talking about here is that they need to pick it out from the right. Say, okay, well, this is your point. Here it is. We can't, you know, with the, the, Remove, remove any, any sense of the bleeding heart out of it and just fight people on their own terms. And that's, right. and that's where we're going to make change. Oh. Yep. I'm with you, man. All right, man. Well, hey, <clears throat> listen, I think we've taken up a, a whole bunch of your time and uh, we've probably got enough material to, uh, to do two episodes and, and At least, really appreciate yeah. that. Um, this conversation was so far ranging and absolutely awesome. And it just speaks to the breadth of your knowledge. and so you know, thanks for doing this. Thanks for always having me on the show. Um, and as right. always, let's stay in touch. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, both of you guys for writing for antiwar.com. Please continue sending in whatever you got. Oh yeah. You'll, you'll see me every week. Yeah. And, uh, I really appreciate you having me on the show today to talk with you guys. So, all right, well, let's talk again soon. All right. Good deal. Thanks guys. Thanks guys. See you later. everyone. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. But truth be told, I need your help. No, I don't need you to move a couch or borrow a leaf blower. No, 
I need you to hit pause on your podcasting app right now and share this episode with somebody you know, somebody who you might think might be receptive to it. It could be a, a friend or relative who's considering joining the military or a veteran you know who might be interested in, in hearing a little more truth in their news about uh, military and veterans. We rely on you all to help us reach as many people as possible. So please hit that pause button right now and share this episode with somebody. Share it all done? Good? Okay, good deal. I know Uncle Al will cuss a lot listening to the episode, but he'll appreciate it when the cursing stops. Now I want to mention something about Patreon. We are always in the market for more Patreon supporters. So if you get the chance, please come out and support us. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month. And what do you get for your dollar, you ask? Well, you get a one-minute drop on any topic you choose once a month. Just email us your question or comment, and we'll give it the old Henry Danny breakdown on air. Guaranteed to have 60 seconds of our time. We may spend more on it. Um, We prefer to do military and veteran topics, but whatever topic you think might be pertinent. And we may spend a whole bunch more time talking about it, depending on the topic. And for contributors, a bit north of a dollar a month, we have some bonus episodes, some essays of mine, and a few other things as well. We're still in the process of, of building our rewards. So if you have any suggestions for Patreon rewards, please let me know. I'd like to take a moment here and thank by name our four honorary producers that are supporting us on a Patreon. And they are Matthew Ho, Will Arens, Gage Counts, and Fahim Shirazi. Anyone who contributes $10 or more on Patreon each month will be listed as an honorary producer. To everyone else who contributes on Patreon, thank you so much as well. Your response has been really wonderful.